Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Grizz Weekly Grind, a proud affiliate of the Basketball Podcast Network. I'm Pete Pranica, TV voice of the Memphis Grizzlies, and your host for the program. This is episode 36, being brought to you today by DraftKings. You know, this weekend's UFC 262 is sure to be a can't-miss event. Every punch, every kick, every knockout means so much more with the DraftKings lineup on the line. DraftKings is the official daily fantasy partner of UFC, and they're giving you a shot at huge cash prizes. For this weekend's card, DraftKings is offering all customers a shot at millions of dollars in total prizes. Now, if you haven't tried it yet, Fantasy MMA is really easy to play. You just pick six fighters, stay under the salary cap, and pile up points for advances, takedowns, and more. No better way to put your MMA knowledge to the test than to compete for a shot at millions of dollars in total prizes. Plus, don't forget about basketball and hockey because DraftKings has even more money up for grabs throughout the week. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable, so you can deposit and withdraw your funds at your convenience. Download the DraftKings app now and use promo code TBPN for your shot at millions of dollars in total prizes throughout the week. That's promo code TBPN to get a shot at millions of dollars in total prizes only at DraftKings. Eligibility restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for details. Well, we're heading to the end of the NBA regular season. Grizzlies are ensconced in the race for the play-in tournament. They almost certainly will make it. The question is seeding. That is what is on the line as the Grizzlies have a very, very busy week ahead of them as they start the week with a Monday-Tuesday back-to-back with New Orleans then Dallas. They're off on Wednesday, then Thursday, Friday games against the Sacramento Kings, all four of those at FedEx Forum, and then a long flight out west, and they'll wrap up the season uh, next Sunday in San Francisco against the Golden State Warriors. It could be a preview of the play-in tournament, and uh, most certainly it will determine who will be which seed as we go into that tournament. So in today's program, of course, we'll start off with that was the week that was, a couple of games to recap for you. Also, PD's points as well. And because the Grizzlies are going to be taking on the Dallas Mavericks, we've enlisted the aid of a new friend of the program, longtime friend, longtime broadcaster for the Dallas Mavericks, Mark Followell, who is also the voice of FC Dallas of MLS. So he's got uh, some soccer stories to tell in addition to keeping us updated with what's going on with the Dallas Mavericks, particularly Kristaps Porzingis and Luka Doncic. So, without further ado, let's get right to work with That Was the Week That Was. Grizzlies on Thursday night playing the second of a back-to-back after they had beaten Minnesota in a real shootout in the Twin Cities. Grizzlies' offense was great in Minnesota. It was not great against the Detroit Pistons. This was a Pistons team that was missing all kinds of players. Dennis Smith Jr., Mason Plumley. Uh, Josh Jackson, all of them were out. Rodney Magruder didn't play. Jeremy Grant didn't play. So this was a Pistons team that was, uh, they're they're thinking about tee times more than anything else. And uh, they came into the game at 19 and 47. They walked out of this game 20 and 47, and they held the Grizzlies to just 97 points. The Grizzlies shot just 27% from three. This was a game that even though Detroit was very, very shorthanded. They came in, they played with great spirit, and they relied on a couple of veterans who have been around the block more than a few times. And I'm talking about Corey Joseph, who has been with the San Antonio Spurs, also with Toronto. Uh, He started the season with Sacramento. Pistons made a deal. 
uh, as DeLon Wright went west, Corey Joseph comes to the Detroit Pistons, and Corey Joseph had himself a magnificent game. A game high plus 14, if you believe in plus minus, and in this case it certainly seemed to uh, be valid. He went for 18 points and 11 assists and three steals with one turnover on 8 of 16 shooting. He was great getting the start at the point for the Detroit Pistons. Wayne Ellington shooting the second-best percentage of his NBA career from three. Six of ten from three. He also had 18 points coming in off the bench. Grizzlies got 20 from John Morant. Jaron Jackson Jr. came off the bench. He had 17, but Dylan Brooks had a horrific shooting night, 4 of 16. He was 0 of 7 from 3, and the Grizzlies, as I said earlier, they were just not very good from the long line, 10 of 37 for 27%. Grizzlies also lost 20 points on turnovers. Um, And the other thing, too, that was odd about this game, the Grizzlies were outscored in the paint. The Pistons dropped 62 in the paint, and the Grizzlies just 54. Uh, Disappointing game for the Grizzlies. Their defense certainly did not play up to standard, uh, particularly in the second quarter and then again in the fourth quarter. Grizzlies were outscored in the second quarter 27-17 and then 33-27 in the fourth quarter. Grizzlies didn't have it. Uh, Obviously, the game against Minnesota, that is going to take a lot out of you, and apparently it took quite a lot out of the Grizzlies. And Defensively, they, they were just not on point, and for a team that's playing the second of a back-to-back, uh, 37 threes, and you make only 10, that tells me that your legs are tired. The defensive lapses tell me that your minds are tired. This is a tired basketball team. There's There are there no, no two ways about it, and we'll talk about the schedule coming up in a little bit. And the fatigue, mental and physical, did show up in this basketball game, and it cost the Grizzlies a loss, a game that when you looked at it on paper, it should have been a win for the Grizzlies, but it was not. It's a 111-97 loss to the Detroit Pistons, so the two teams split the season series with the home team winning both. Grizzlies then on Saturday would be faced with a similar situation as they take on a Toronto Raptors team that doesn't look anything like the Toronto Raptors. Fred Van Vliet, rest. Kyle Lowry, rest. OG Ananobi, he's been battling a calf strain most of the season. Chris Boucher, left knee sprain. He's not playing. So you really had a Toronto team that outside of Pascal Siakam and Gary Trent Jr., they were really playing some backup players. Aaron Baines also was not available to play. So Kem Birch, who came over in a trade with Orlando, he ends up playing the center. And Kem Birch is a, a good player, but he's only 6'9". And so Jonas Valanciunas... And the Grizzlies took full advantage of this. Jonas went for 18 and 21 rebounds with four blocks. The story in this game, and we'll touch on Jaron a little bit more coming up in Petey's points, was the fact that Jaron got his first start of the season and, and played well and was a difference maker in the third quarter. He had 20 points for the night. He had 11 in the third quarter. This was a one-point Grizzlies lead at halftime, and the Grizzlies expanded it to a nine-point lead after three quarters. Part of that, obviously, Toronto, short on bodies, short on talent. Um, the Grizzlies were able to take advantage. And, and Jaron, again, I thought played a really good game. And um, he becomes the 12th different Grizzly to lead the team in scoring. Only Orlando has had more different players lead their team in scoring. And a lot of that is because they made a lot of deals at the deadline. So they had more players from which to choose. But 12 different players leading the Grizzlies in scoring in an individual game is pretty impressive. Grizzlies also had all five starters, two reserves in double figures. And part of the reason the Grizzlies were able to hold off the Toronto Raptors 
DeAnthony Melton rediscovered his three-point shot. Five of ten from three. All five threes made in the fourth quarter. He went off for 15 in the fourth quarter. So Jaron with 11 in the third. And then DeMelt with 15 in the fourth quarter. Enough to put the Raptors away. Grizzlies go a game above 500 at 34 and 33. Raptors 27 and 41. Grizzlies win at 109 to 99. And to give you an idea, and look, I know the Raptors were shorthanded. I, I get that. But still, the Grizzlies did hold them to 38% shooting and to fewer than 100 points. It ended the longest active home court streak for 100-point scoring. Raptors had scored just 99 in the home opener against New Orleans. They ran off 32 in a row in triple digits, and then the Grizzlies finally held them to fewer than 100 points. So good defensive effort for the Grizzlies. They had to deal, obviously, not with Kyle Lowry and Fred, Fred Van Vliet, who you know are fantastic basketball players. But they did. I thought they did a really good job against Pascal Siakam, who finished with 18 points. And he was coming off a career-high tying 44 the uh, couple of nights earlier against the Washington Wizards. I know the game went overtime, but still 44. I don't care if you're playing triple overtime is, is a big number. But Pascal Siakam was held to just 8 of 21 from the floor and 0 of 4 from 3. And the Toronto Raptors, who rely very heavily on the three ball, they were held to just 10 of 32, 31%. So the Grizzlies wrap up the road trip 2-1. and one. I guess before the road trip, if you are offered 2-1, and one, you're going to take it. If the Grizzlies hadn't been so fatigued in Detroit, maybe, maybe it could have been a 3-0 road trip, but it was not. Grizzlies come home 2-1, and one, and that sets them up for the final five of the season with uh, a couple of sets of back-to-backs still remaining. And that does it for That Was the Week That Was. And now onward with Petey's points. Well, number one, it's pretty pretty obvious. I mean, Jaron Jackson Jr. starts his first game of the season in Tampa against Toronto, which still feels odd to say. And glad I only have to think about it once a year and probably never again, we hope. Uh, Jaron, I thought, look, so many fans were upset about how long the rehab took. There were all kinds of conspiracy theories that, well, you know, maybe he suffered a setback or things aren't really going as well as the front office is telling us. I really and truly believe, knowing where the Grizzlies are philosophically with how they treat player injuries and rehab, they wanted Jaron to come back not just healthy enough to physically walk on the court and run up and down the floor. They wanted him physically and mentally ready that he could step in and be productive. And he was productive when he was coming in off the bench. Grizzlies got him in the starting lineup. Played almost 26 minutes, which is pretty much what he'd been playing. I think he was averaging 22 actually coming off the bench. So, uh, you know, the minutes weren't too onerous. Three steals, block shot, defensive instincts are there. Still got to work on the fouling. But, I mean, that 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 predates the knee injury. I mean, Jaron has always had issues with fouling. Uh, he's going to have to move his feet a little bit better and, and just not reach and just not be tempted uh, because that's how he runs into foul trouble. The other thing, too, and, and I mentioned this in the telecast, and I don't mean it as a diss to Jaron, 10 three-pointers from him probably is, a, is is maybe a little north of the number that, if I'm coaching, I would like. I mean, he has the ability to hit it. We, we've seen him hit five or more threes in games, but just three of 10. So he's three of 10. From the three-point line, he's four of seven inside the three-point line. I just like to see him work a little bit more inside. Again, three of 10, 30%, slight off night. Man, it's not the end of the world. But I hope that Jaron doesn't become so enamored with a three-point shot that he forgets 
or goes away from wanting to take the ball to the front of the rim because I think that is where his athleticism, his length, can really, really help the Grizzlies so that all their paint scoring isn't floaters or Valanchunas on second-chance points. But other than that, I'm really pleased, and I think Grizzlies fans should be pleased with where Jaron Jackson Jr. is at this point. Uh, I feel good that the Grizzlies have put him back in the starting lineup because now you have the most arduous week in the season, and you need to get him in the starting lineup And because if, if you are going to make it through the play-in tournament and if you are going to end up in the playoffs, you need to have your rotation settled. Uh, or even just going into the playing tournament. I think you need to have your rotation settled. And, and we started to see, I think, in that game, the rotation settled down a little bit. Xavier Tillman didn't get any minutes. Justice Winslow didn't get any minutes. And the Grizzlies basically played nine. John Conchar got about four and a half minutes. But other than that, Anderson, Jackson, Valanchunas, Brooks, and Morant started the game. Bain, Melton, Clark, and Tyus Jones came off the bench, and then the, the scant minutes for John Conchar. Everybody else was DMPCD. Grayson Allen's still out because of the, of the abdominal issue. Not sure when he will come back, but Kyle Anderson slides to the three. Jaron's the four. Jonas in the middle at the five. Dylan Brooks goes from the three to the two, and Job, of course, stays at the one. I think this is probably going to be your lineup going forward. I think it is your best lineup going forward, and then you sort out your bench rotation depending on who's available. Bain... Uh, did a good job again coming off the bench. Double figures for him off the bench. Melton, we talked about, and if he rediscovers his three-point shot and his defensive mojo coming off the bench, I, th I think this sets the Grizzlies up in, in real, real good territory. Brings me to Petey's point number two. Uh, the defense has been declining as of late. The defensive rating going into the Toronto game for the month of May, small sample size, I know, was like 119 points given up per 100 possessions. It's way, way too high. Uh, the Grizzlies earlier in the season had a defensive rating of like 108. Uh, but May, it, it's been a struggle. They have not gotten the turnovers that they normally get. This is a team that leads the league in double-digit steal games. They've only had one in the last 11. Now, steals are not the only barometer of how well the defense is playing, but the Grizzlies, in order for their defense in order for them to score, a lot of their scoring, in fact, the, uh, the largest share in the NBA this year is points off turnovers. And if you're not generating turnovers, if you're not getting steals, then it becomes an issue. Uh, Grizzlies also, I think communication hasn't been maybe as good as it should be. Mentally, this team, like I said, it's fatigued and it's understandable. And I think that shows up. Rotations maybe aren't being done. Communication isn't there. Errors are being made. Teams are getting dribble penetration, and they're getting to the front of the rim. We saw that certainly with Detroit uh, in, in their victory over the Grizzlies. So defense has been, has been sliding a little bit. Now, in the month of April, Grizzlies' defense slid a little bit, but their offense was so good that it covered up for their defense. But now the offense leveled off a little bit, and so in May, you're having the situation where the defense is not protecting the offense. And the Grizzlies are not built, I don't think, they're not built to outscore you. They are there to defend you, make it extremely hard for you to score, and the Grizzlies are talented offensively enough on an average to slightly better than average night to be able to beat you because their defense is going to be good. If their defense is below average, the chances are their offense might not be better than average, and then you're going to end up with a loss. That's at least how I see it. Finally, I just want to get to, uh, you know, we've been talking about all this schedule stuff, and I do want to touch on this because I think – 
that it really does bear mentioning. Um, I had the big brains at Sport Radar who do the research uh, for Bally Sports to look at the Grizzlies' schedule in the second half. You all remember that in 1998-99, it was a lockout year. Uh, there were only 50 games played. Teams were playing three in three nights. So since then, no team has been scheduled to play 40 games in a 68-day span. Uh, two teams have played 40 games in a 69-day span in the 2011-2012 season, but uh, nobody has played 40 over a 68-day span since the lockout year. Grizzlies also have the most back-to-backs uh, in the NBA in the second half of the season. They're tied with San Antonio. San Antonio hanging on to the 10th seed in the Western Conference. And the Grizzlies are going to play and have played uh, five in seven eight times the most in the league since the All-Star break. Grizzlies and the San Antonio Spurs are the only two teams that have not had consecutive days off in the second half of the season. Both of, both of them were affected by COVID health and safety protocols. You remember the Grizzlies had six postponed. Only one was made up. And so this is what the Grizzlies are dealing with. Now, look, the schedule is what the schedule is, and, and there's nothing that we can do about it. I know there's some people, I talked to some people, this week, we said, well, you know, the NBA, uh, you know, really hurt the Grizzlies. I, well, you know, look, we knew the schedule was going to be tight. And if you are parked for a total of six games as the Grizzlies were and you can't make them up in the first half, they got to be made up somewhere. And uh, that's what has created this chock-a-block schedule for the Grizzlies. Very difficult, not a lot of fun, but uh, as the kids say, it is what it is. And those are Petey's points for today. This is episode 36 of the Grizz Weekly Grind, and we ask if there was one thing you could do, one bold action you could take, one inspired choice you could make, one investment guaranteed to transform Memphis, would you do it? Well, if that answer is yes, here's your chance. The Grizzlies Foundation is looking for Memphians to be the difference in a child's life by becoming a volunteer mentor. There are 800 youth in Memphis waiting for your decision today, so don't delay. Join the movement. Become a mentor at grizzliesfoundation.org. This message brought to you through the generous support of Garner Framing Company. They've been serving Memphis for 70 years, and they're a proud supporter of the Memphis Grizzlies Foundation. They're doing their framing consultations by appointment, so call them at 901-685-7796. That's 901-685-7796. In all likelihood, you'll talk to Chris Garner, and uh, he will consult with you on your framing project, and I guarantee you that he and his group will do an absolutely fantastic job for you. He does all the framing that I have here uh, at the World Galactic Headquarters of Pranica Media, and so uh, I entrust everything to Chris, and you should as well. All right, that brings us to this week's friend of the program. Grizzlies have their third and final meeting with the Dallas Mavericks, and uh, for a number of years now, Mark Followell has been the television voice of the Dallas Mavericks. He started as the radio voice of the Dallas Mavericks and transitioned over to television, and he is a multi-Emmy Award winner. Great work, not only with the Dallas Mavericks, also calls college football for Fox Sports, and is also the voice of FC Dallas of Major League Soccer. And today, he's our friend of the program. Mark, you have one of the hotter teams in the NBA right now. You have one, three in a row, six of seven, nine of the last 11. I guess the short question is, what's working so well for the Mavericks right now? Well, it's a very good question. Um, probably a lot of different answers they could give to that, Pete. I think they put Dwight Powell into the starting lineup when they were in a rough skid recently. 
Uh, that was a game against Detroit right before they had their back-to-back home games against the Lakers. And I think that they played with a little bit more energy since then. He hasn't even started all of the games, but I just think this was a team that was kind of lethargic and, you know, maybe some of it was scheduling catching up to them, but they've just played with a really good energy. Um, now that doesn't carry over to every minute of every game. Of course, they've had moments where they've had to have other people kind of find their energy and lift them up, but it's some combination of responding to poor performances playing with more energy, getting re-engaged on the defensive end of the floor. And the one thing that, look, you can point to this with pretty much any team, but it seems to be of particular importance for the Mavs is shot-making is an extreme, extraordinary, I would say, predictor of how this team is going to go. They're 29-0 this year when they shoot a better three-point percentage than their opponent. And so some factor of all of those things, and, of course, you know, individual greatness of Luka and individual greatness of Tim Hardaway Jr., the way he's shooting the ball lately. You know, uh, uh, a factor of all of those things, what percentage and the ratio, how you split it all up, who knows. But but all of those things are contributors right now. What is the status for Porzingis? Because I know that he's been in and out, and I know that Rick Carlisle and Casey Smith and, and your performance team are going to try to manage his minutes and make sure that he is as healthy as possible for the postseason. What what's what's the deal with Porzingis and and his recovery from the knee injury? Well, you know he's been in and out of the lineup this year. Uh, there have been a lot of resting on back to backs. There's also been a recent ankle sprain. And Pete, the last time that he came back from he, he sprained his ankle in one of the games against the Lakers. And he missed a handful of games. I believe it was three games that he missed. He came back at a road game against Detroit. Uh, I believe the date on that would have been um, April the 21st, I think, or the 28th may, may have been the date on that. But, but in any event, uh, he left that game with knee soreness, and he hasn't been back since. So I, I believe April 28th or April 29th was the day on that last game whenever he left the game with knee soreness. Uh, he's missed over a week's worth of games since. Um, and I, I think the, the expectation is that he will be back for some of these regular season games. The Mavs have five left whenever we're speaking here uh, as of the time that we're doing this interview. So, you know, the, that, that's the expectation. But when exactly that's going to be uh, is a pretty closely guarded secret. And I'm not even sure, to be honest with you, Pete, that the Mavs know at this point. But they are targeting a return for some regular season games uh, before the playoffs and whatever version the Mavs are participating in the play-in tournament or the traditional playoffs after the play-in tournament or directly into the traditional playoffs. Uh, you know, before the, before those get started, the Mavs do hope to get him on the floor for some regular season games. Play-in tournament. Interesting situation. Everybody voted for it. Yeah. And once you become potentially involved in it, all of a sudden becomes something you don't want to be involved in. And I, and I get that. I get that. And obviously, your owner, Mark Cuban, has been has said, hey, look, I think we made a mistake with it. Um, I, I'm not asking you to, to necessarily contradict your owner, but when you look at all the interest that has been placed on the race for seven, eight, nine, ten, and hey, let's get to six so we can get out of this thing, uh, I think it's generated a lot of interest in the NBA. From, from your chair as a team that right now is just doing their very best to avoid it, what, what are your thoughts about this setup? Well, you're right that the team is doing its very best to avoid it, but I absolutely love the playing tournament. And I loved it when we, we were seventh, and I loved it when we've been out of it. <laughs> and if we fell back to seventh in the next week, I would still love it. Uh, it's, it is great. Uh, and, and I echo all of your sentiments. Um, you know, 
It's made games in the 5-6-7 range, for example, in the Western Conference where the Lakers, Blazers, and Mavericks are all jockeying for position right now. It has made those games, which in a normal season would have some element of excitement to them because you want to finish as high as you can, of course. But there's a level of urgency and desperation, obviously, to finish as high as you can or at least not finish in seventh, that it's made what games that would be somewhat interesting, extraordinarily interesting at this time of the year, let alone what's happening with eight, nine, 10 and the battle among those spots. And I, I absolutely love everything that it's done. Uh, it's discouraged tanking. It's made games that, as I mentioned a moment ago, would, would be somewhat interesting into extremely interesting. And it's just put all of our focus on what it should be. And that's the games on the floor and not who's resting and who's not playing and who's not trying to win because of their draft position, et cetera, et cetera. So absolutely love it. And I sure hope it's here to stay. Uh, you know, as far as this year goes, um, there's certainly an argument that because of the compressed schedule, uh, you know, I, I understand where Mark's coming from. Number one, he's got to protect Luca. Luca doesn't like it. LeBron James doesn't like it. And I understand why players don't like it, Pete. Players like Luca and LeBron and other great players want to win at the highest level. And the play-in tournament is an impediment to that. So I understand where they're coming from on that. Uh, I expect players to be focused on winning and business people to worry about the business side of things. And exactly. clearly from the business side of things and the entertainment side of things, this is a great, great thing for the league. Uh, you know, it's a shame. It's got a little bit of negative attention right now, but to me, the, you know, the greater issue this year has just been the compressed schedule. The play in tournament is not the problem in terms of all of this. And I sure hope it's here to stay. Yeah, that that's a very good distinction. The playing tournament not is, is not the issue. The fact that there is a compressed schedule is an issue, and the Grizzlies have really suffered from that because they had six first half games postponed. Yeah. Only one was made up in the first half, and which is why they're playing you know this insane amount of games, forty and sixty eight days down the stretch. We're visiting with with Mark Followill, the longtime TV voice of the Dallas Mavericks. He's our friend of the program today on the Grizz Weekly Grind. One of the things I wanted to ask you because so many times we look at the defensive ability of a team and we measure it with block shots. We measure it with steals or forced turnovers yet. The Mavericks don't force a ton of turnovers. They don't get a whole ton of uh, a whole lot of steals. And yet they are one of the better defensive teams in the NBA. I know a lot of that is just the way Rick Carlisle tends to coach, but what is so good about this Mavericks defense that is not forced turnover related? Matter of fact, they're last in the league in steals this year. They're averaging just over six steals a game, right at six steals a game. So they're last in the league in that category and have been for some time. So what I think is good is, uh, you know, it, it starts at the top. Not, not only just Rick Carlisle, but assistant coach Jamal Mosley is in charge of the defense. And he's meticulous in terms of his game planning. He can adjust uh, in between games to a different strategy because of a particular matchup at a particular opponent. And he can just within the within the game as well. So I think you've got uh, great tacticians that are designing what they do on the defensive end of the floor. And you've got a lot of good individual defenders. And as you know, Pete, you can be a good individual individual defender. That doesn't necessarily have to uh, you know result in steals, which uh, I know you've seen a lot of Rick's interviews over the years. He'll say that if you start gambling for steals and going after them willy-nilly, then that could get your defense out of balance and put you in, in some compromised situations because you've gambled and put you in some potentially negative situations, to be quite honest with you, defensively. So they've just got good defenders and Dorian Finney-Smith, Josh Richardson, uh, Dwight Powell plays with a lot of, of defensive energy. Uh, some of that does result in some steals and blocks for him. He had three steals and two blocks in a game earlier this week against Miami. He's not playing right now because of an Achilles injury, but uh, an Achilles soreness issue, that is. But Maxi Kleba 
uh, is a very good defender as well. So they've got, you know, what, what teams want in the NBA now, like-sized defenders who can switch on a lot of things, and they've done some work over the course of the season that when they do start to have some slippage, they manage to clean that up before it becomes a prolonged issue. So that, that combination of all of those things, I think, is, is why they've been able to be a good defensive team this year. They're willing to draw charges. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're good as a defensive rebounding team. They've gotten better at that as the year has gone on. They made a much greater commitment to transition defense, which they feel like that's kind of where things start. So whereas in the past they've had some pretty poor numbers transition defense wise, they've improved that quite a bit this year. So, so again, you know, there's probably no one right answer to it. It's all a combination of a lot of things and, and all of those things I mentioned, I would, I would lump in together as to what's made them an improved defensive team this year. Uh, they still got a ways to go. I think they would say, uh, but they certainly have improved. And, and I would add one last thing. Uh, at the beginning of the year, especially, whenever it was talked about a lot, uh, you had buy-in for the best player. And that, of course, is Luka. Luka's improved as a defender this year and you know puts in competent performances on that end of the floor. And buy-in from your best player energizes everybody to do it. That's a huge thing. We talk about Rick Carlisle, I think, should end up in the Hall of Fame at some point, uh, winning as coach in Mavericks history. An interesting guy because he is more than a basketball lifer. He is a licensed pilot, which we will talk pregame when we're actually in the same building. We'll talk about our, our respective flying adventures and uh, plays the piano, friend of Bruce Hornsby. Mm-hmm. What What is Rick Carlisle really like to be with? I know you're not with them on a daily basis today because of COVID, but to have Rick Carlisle as your head coach, what, what is the nature of, of your relationship, your rapport, and, and what has he meant to the franchise? Well, his impact on the franchise is immeasurable because, you know, he came here when things looked like they were really pointing in a negative direction because bad experiences had happened. And, you know, the Mavericks had quite frankly, they'd blown it with the 2006 finals and then winning 67 games in 2007 uh, and losing in the first round to Golden State and then trading for Jason Kidd and another first round exit. And so he came here and, uh, you know, again, his impact is immeasurable because he was able to lift the franchise and all of these important components and and get everything working and pointing in the right direction to overcome those, uh, you know, crushing defeats and failures and end up winning a title. So, I mean, that's the first thing I would say about Rick. My relationship with him is very good. Uh, You know, he certainly respects what I and Chuck Cooperstein are very, very talented radio voice and a great friend of yours as well, Pete. He really respects what we do and understands what our part of things are and has always been very, very helpful and accommodating to us uh, in terms of his time and interviews and things like that. And then the other thing I would want to add to to all of our fans, uh, to all of your fans that are watching about Rick is, number one, he embraces MFFLs. And, you know, is, is really good with fans and, you know, uh, will we'll talk to them and uh, just, you know, tries to engage with them uh, whenever those kind of events, which aren't happening right now, but whenever those kind of events do occur, you know, he's a good storyteller and he likes to engage with the fans and uh, be interactive with them. And I think he's just a great historian of the game. And that's probably one of the points I would want to make, especially about it as well, is Rich to Scott, when you talk to him, about things that are happening in the game now and how they relate to things that have happened in the past and his own experiences in the past. Rick loves to talk about those sorts of things and I think has a real knack for placing everything in perspective and providing historic historical analysis about things that are happening now and how they relate to things in the past or just 
talking about things that happened in the past. So Rick's just a, a really smart guy who is a lifer in the game and understands different eras of the game and how they all relate to one another and just has, uh, you know, really thinks it on a very, very unique uh, and intelligent level. Very uh, erudite. Rick Carlisle, I guess, would be a good way to describe it. Yes, I was going to say Renaissance man or polymath or, or, or some other description. I've always enjoyed, always enjoyed talking to him. And I remember when he was in Detroit, I think he was uh, and, and the team broadcaster still had a vote for the end of season awards. I want yes. to say that he called me to talk about um, Ben Wallace as defensive player of the year. He was, he was he actually made the phone calls to the voters yeah. to, to talk to them about um, why they should place their vote with with one of one of his particular players. You have had the opportunity to call the games of one of the amazing players. And I can say that now because the Grizzlies don't have to play against him in Dirk Nowitzki, who, by all accounts, extremely classy guy, amazingly talented Hall of Famer. And now you have Luka Doncic. What's it like having one franchise player follow another of such incredible stature and talent? Oh, well, it's, you know, the Mavs are very, very fortunate in that regard. Uh, You know, the one thing is that we have to understand that they're two different individuals and the world is a much different place now. And as a matter of fact, it was Steve Nash himself. Now, not in his current capacity as Brooklyn Nets head coach, but when he was back to see one of Dirk's last games, his final year, Pete, and that was, of course, Luca's rookie year. One of the great points that Steve made was, you know, Luca is so ready for this because he left home at 13 years old and social media and the internet has made the world so small compared to when Dirt came over to Dallas, Texas in 1998, 1999 for his first year, the lockout shortened season. You know, he basically hardly ever left Würzburg, Germany. And, you know, the world was a mighty big place probably to a 19 year old as uh, Dirk would call himself shy, skinny German kid, Um, you know, so it was a pretty intimidating situation when Dirk first came here and he really had a lot to learn in terms of just life in America. That's not to say that Luca hasn't had to learn those things as well, but there's just such a difference in what the world is now and what young people are exposed to now compared to what young people were exposed to then. So, you know, there's a lot of differences because, you know, Luca was ready to come here and hit the ground running and Dirk had a massive adjustment period. But it's, it's very, very special to watch great players do the great things that they do night in, night out. And you know this with Ja Morant, who's, you know, obviously one of the great young players in the league as well. Uh, you know, to see, uh, much like Dirk, you know, Dirk would have these nights, Pete, where he'd have four points at halftime and he'd get done at the end of the night and he'd still end up with 30, you know. And I think as a matter of fact, you know, that, that's been, you know, something that's happened in some games recently, like almost those kind of same stat lines. And I'll talk to Harp, you know, on our broadcast, Eric Harper uh, and, and Jeff Wade, are my, my two analysts, and we'll talk to Harp and I'll say, look, I'm not worried about Luke and his numbers. He's going to get his points. Uh, if he's got four at halftime or six at halftime or whatever, he's still going to end up with his number. And, you know, night, night in, night out, he does end up with his mid to high 20s uh, in points. And so it's just it's it's pretty unique to watch a player that uh, just is able to stay with it over the course of the game and not get deterred by negative things that happened. And, you know, that's really kind of one of the unique things about superstardom. And there's probably a lot of other things I could say about, uh, you know, the two guys, but in the entrance and the interest of some sort of brevity, I mean, you know, those would be kind of the, the points that we make about it. You know, and I remember when Dirk came into the league in that lockout shortened season it was my first season, my first full season in the NBA. I was with the Portland trailblazers. And I remember watching the games with Dirk 
And he was so young and so gangly and so, and I don't mean this in a negative sense, but he was so undisciplined in the mm-hmm. NBA game that you kind of did scratch your head and said like, okay, how is this, how is this going to work out? But there's also been a tremendous evolution perhaps in the perception of European players. And there have been so many European players that have come over. And I think Dirk was Dirk along with Pau Gasol were two of the early pioneers really to come over mm-hmm. and, and to excel in the NBA. And it's been very interesting to watch that go on. And I, I really agree with your point. I think Luca was so much more ready to come to the NBA than Dirk was as a 19 year old coming out of, out of Würzburg. And that's always, that's always been my favorite uh, trivia trivia bit. His, his team were the, uh, were the X-rays. Yeah. Because, right. because uh, Rontgen, the inventor of X-rays was from Würzburg, Germany. And I, mm-hmm. I, I like stumping people with that. I maybe could have, good. Won, could have won some bar bets with that. Final question for you. Uh, you are a multi-sport broadcaster. Uh, you and Dave Johnson are two NBA voices who are also voices of MLS teams. You're the voice of Dallas FC. Where, where did the soccer fandom come from? Where did the interest come from? Oh, man. Uh, it's been there for a long time. Uh, you know, I kind of remember when we didn't get the World Cup on English over-the-air television in the United States in 1986, and I would watch it on, uh, uh, what, I don't know if it was Telemundo or Univision. I don't remember it, 15 years old, uh, what Spanish-language TV network I was watching, but I remember watching it then. Uh, and, and my mom saying, well, son, I don't understand what they're saying, but you seem like you really like it. And those guys seem like they're really excited. So, <laughs> you know, it goes all the way back to that, um, you know, to, to being 15 years old and watching a World Cup. And, you know, the sport is, is just, uh, you know, it's so simple yet so complex. Uh, you know, it's an amazing game. It's the world's game, much in the same way basketball is now, by the way. It's a, being a global game. Um, and so there's just a real beauty in the sport. Um you know, and that's something I think that's just sort of always attracted me to it. And as the years have gone on, uh, you know, grown to appreciate what you know, not just international soccer in terms of, you know, the United States against whomever or or Germany against Argentina in a World Cup. But the, the greatness of club soccer around the around the world, uh, the English Premier League and all the big leagues in Europe. And I love how MLS has grown. So, uh, you know, just. I've gotten to be a bigger and bigger fan of the sport as the years have gone on. And, you know, it's a, it's a great time to be a fan of soccer because of what's happening in the country and, and what's happening with all the new franchises that keep coming into major league soccer. And, you know, they they have the benefits of teams like Dallas that uh, had to go through the rough patches and understand the mistakes. And now, you know, you, you know what mistakes not to make when you're starting a franchise. And so, Seattle and Portland and Austin who's come in and Nashville who's come in and Miami and just, you know, all of these new teams, LAFC, uh, you know, they, they, they certainly have a lot better understanding because other organizations have ridden out the rough patches and, you know, those, those, those organizations are able to hit the ground running and that's great. Uh, you know, but it's just a really, really exciting time right now because even though we stubbed our toe in the Olympic qualifying, I do think that the state of the national team is about to get very, very exciting with all of the young players that are American that are playing for big, big clubs. Uh, you know, Christian Pulisic, obviously at the top of the list with Chelsea, but there are many, many others who are playing at some great, great clubs in Europe. We're going to be part of the U.S. men's national team here as they get ready to qualify for 2022 and 2026 when the World Cup's here. So this is just uh, it's an exciting time in the sport right now and and thrilled to be some small part of it. And, you know, it's just 
it's been something that's been in my blood for a long, long time. And, and, you know, it's just continued to be something that I've grown more and more fond of as the years have gone on. Very cool. Yeah. Soccer really is growing and, and it's not MLS, but also just MLS, but USL as well. Yeah. And that's starting to grow as well. And, and finally, we're seeing the soccer boom, I think, that has been predicted for any number of years. Mark, one of the things and we talked about this before I hit record on this was uh, in this COVID era, we don't get to travel. We don't get to see each other. And uh Coming to Dallas and seeing you and Harp and Skin and, and Chuck, uh, that's always one of the highlights of the year. And I'm sorry we're not going to be able to do it this season, but uh, next season, first round's on me. Hey, man. Well, that's really nice of you to offer. And, uh, you know, not to – I sense myself almost getting a little emotional about this. I got to be kind of careful. <laughs> but, man, you know, I miss seeing you guys and just miss seeing everybody around the league. You know, the we, we can do the games as broadcasters. Uh, we can do them off a monitor and, you know, I, I'm sure as you do, you know, I get a lot of positive feedback about it and I think that things are going really well, but you know, life is about people, Pete. And when you're not getting to sustain the relationships that you built with friends, you know, like you and I over the years and, and you and me and Eric Castletine and Rob Fisher and those guys in Memphis and others around the league, man, when you're not getting to sustain those things, those relationships that you built with, you know, face-to-face interaction, man, it's hard. And so I miss my friends and, and that's a real, that's a real tough part of it, but you know, we're, we're, we're managing it in the best way that we can. There's a lot of other people that are going through a lot tougher times than that. So, you know, try to, I kind of try to keep it in perspective and, and hopefully things will be in a better place here in the not too distant future, man. Indeed. Indeed. Thanks for the time, Mark. I appreciate it. You got it, Pete. All the best to you. Take care. Mark certainly hits the nail on the head when talking about what we do as as a relationship business. It's a relationship with the players. It's a relationship with the coaches, relationship with other broadcasters that, you know, it, it it's a big part of our social network. And when we go to Dallas, if the Stars are playing the night before the Grizzlies play the Mavericks, you can be sure that Mark Followell, Eric Hasseltine, our radio voice, and some of our others are going to get get some tickets and we're going to go drink a few beers and we're going to watch some hockey and and have a real good time and we really do miss the connectivity because of covid and i hope that the local networks will allow announcers to travel again next year i think it will make for a much better product the product has been okay this year but i think all of us who do this for a living know that we're we can't be as good as we can be if we're doing this remotely And so hopefully we will be back in NBA arenas next year where we can be courtside or at least in the building and uh, actually have some contact with players and coaches and give you the very best telecast that we possibly can. Hopefully we gave you the best podcast we possibly could today. This has been episode 36 of the Grizz Weekly Grind. It's been brought to you by the Hoop City Basketball Club. Since 2005, their mission has been to assist young student athletes in grades 1 through 12 in developing a strong work ethic with discipline, responsibility, and accountability. Hoop City has helped young men be great on the court and in the community. Their alumni include major college and NBA players. If you'd like more information on how to become part of this great sports and character building club, log on to HoopCityBC.com and you can follow them on Twitter at HoopCityBC. As they say, it's in our blood. It's who we are in Hoop City. That's a wrap for today's show. We will be back with episode 37 and we will recount the Dallas game and the New Orleans game and see where the Grizzlies stack up as they go into the final three games of the season. That'll come up in episode 37. I'm Pete Pratica. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.